Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we are joined by our resident ephesiologist, uh, Michael. My name is... Uh, who is that guy? Well, Michael? Michael? <laughs> there's, a, there's a little hesitancy there. Well, I mean... <laughs> We like it's him. Summer, good enough. It's summer. Uh, I'm Andrew. I am uh, the associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas, and today we are joined by Clayton Green. He is the director of the Summit Collaborative. Uh, for most of our listeners, that sounds like a cool title. Uh, but Clayton, uh, introduce yourself. What all do you get to do? Uh, tell us more about who you are. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to. Be able to have this conversation with you all today. Uh, yes, I am the director of the Summit Collaborative, but uh, back up for just a second. Um, I am a, a husband and a father. My wife, Kristen, is an attorney at a clinical research company. I have two girls. They are almost 10 and already eight, because when you get close enough to a birthday, your kids make you refer to them by their new uh Age exactly than the age that they actually are so no because it's what they feel it's what they feel yeah. they are yeah which means i'm 37 almost 38 that's the so you gotta maybe we can just all continue to to do that i think when you get older you kind of you you flip it right so you kind of hold on to the to the previous age a little bit longer so they're 10 or, or and eight. You just forget you just forget how old you are i mean See, that's, that's here's brilliant. what i did Here's what I did, Clayton. I used to work at a restaurant and if I had um, if I if it was a male's birthday, it was always his 13th birthday, which made everybody laugh and make yep. fun of the male. And if it was a woman's birthday, it was always her 21st birthday, which made them always very happy. And I got tipped better. So there's a note yeah. to servers who are listening to this always say, is it your 21st birthday to a woman? And they will smile and hug you. So anyway, yeah. uh, you advice already yeah. coming out hot. So that's, that's really <laughs> exciting. So we, we live in uh, Durham or Raleigh, Durham or the triangle, North Carolina, whichever you prefer to call all of those. But we, we live in Durham. Um, Kristen and I met at UNC when we went to uh, undergrad to stay there for graduate school. I was trained as a physical therapist. I practiced for five years. I uh, love physical therapy, but then uh, this guy named Ethan Welch, who was at the Summit Church, the church where we were, um, asked me to move to Wilmington, North Carolina, in order to be the executive pastor of a church there. I told Kristen, and she said, that's flattering, but we're not going, right? So the Summit, like, they they send and plan a lot of churches. So it kind of felt <laughs> like being drafted, but she's right. like, we're not doing that, right? You're a physical therapist. That's not That's not right. So five months later, all of our family, um, all of our friends um, told us that, that it fit and it was right for us. So we moved to Wilmington. We were there for four years. Um, the, the longest story of my life in two sentences is we had to move back to the Triangle because my daughter, Kara, the 10-year-old, has a genetic disorder, only 300 diagnosed cases in the world. She's doing really oh, well. She's good in a typical fourth grade uh, classroom, has a lot of supports, but she has a lot of doctor's appointments at Duke and UNC, great medical centers. And it was mm. in 2017, we made 17 trips back and forth. Mm. Um, and it just, it just was, it's three hours. My, my younger daughter, Susan started crying when we would leave. I mean, it just was, it was really hard on our family. So we, we relocated. And then I got this great job 
um, actually supporting that church um, and mm. all other 59 churches that we planted around the country. And so that's what my job is, is um, I get to support all of them, help make sure that they are flourishing and then work with all of them towards continued multiplication. I can tell you more about what that means day to day, but that's kind of the, the uh, high level of what I do. That's amazing. Um, I love to hear this. Uh, I am glad to hear that your daughter is doing well uh, and that, and that, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, oh, you just shared your heart and your daughter and like, you know, the absolute core of who you are, but let's move on and talk about other things. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that yeah. things are going well <laughs> uh, there. Yeah, yeah. What? yeah, I'm excited, Clayton, that you're joining us. Clayton and I met a couple months ago uh, to, on Zoom, but we were connected by a mutual friend uh, of ours, Chris Evans. Chris and I served together on the board of Door International. And uh, he thought, gosh, we just need to get you guys connected. And I'm so thankful that he did and uh, excited about uh, this conversation that we're having and uh, what the what the future could hold. Yes. So, Clayton, you are, as you stated, you said 59 other. So is there 60 total churches or is there 59 churches that the Summit Collaborative is over? Yeah, there are there are 59 churches total so not 59 other it, yeah yeah yeah. So there's not six there's 59 that's all right there, i just was making sure i was churches. mathing well yeah, yeah. uh okay so you you have 59 churches that are a part of the summit collaborative um what does it take to be a part of the summit collaborative how did the summit collaborative come to be uh i have a lot more questions but maybe just two at the beginning yeah. before i inundate you uh, the vast majority of those 59 churches were actually planted um, out of the Summit Church. And then now we say they're planted out of the Summit Collaborative. So here's how it all started. The Summit started planting churches because J.D. Greer, the lead pastor of the Summit Church, said, hey, we want to plant a thousand churches in a generation. Walked off the stage and looked at my predecessor, Mike McDaniel, and said, hey, let's go figure out how we can plant these churches. So at the Summit, we kind of have this, we have an international church planting arm and a national church planting arm here in North America. And so what I'm speaking of is the national church planning arm. Uh, We do have a couple of international cities um, where we have churches, but essentially the international arm is more like the house church 1040 window model. And ours is more of the organizational church looks like a North American church type of model. So Mike McDaniel is responsible for that national church planting. And uh, he starts planting churches. We plant one. It was about 12 years ago. The next year we planted another one. The next year we didn't plant any. The year after that, we planted two. And so it's kind of this like we're beginning to plant churches. By the time they got around 10 to 15, it got to this place that we realized we had created a group of people that had an affinity for each other and a desire to do something together that we actually didn't we didn't start to create a collaborative. We started to plant churches and then they everybody wanted to collaborate together to continue to plant more churches. And so this conversation began about how do we do that together? So then over time, we get a little bit better and a little bit better at planting churches and doing that together. And it's kind of morphed into this this unique type of organization that we call the Summit Collaborative, where it's these 59 churches where they are identifying leaders together. They are supporting each other like family. Uh, We really are a family. And then we also are championing each other's multiplication. So if one of the churches is planting, it doesn't feel like only one church is planting. That's the parent church. They're also planting that church into a brotherhood or a family, so to speak. Okay. So um, how do you, are all of these uh, church planters, uh, 
like you said, they're not planting out of the mother church. They're planting out of the collaborative. Uh, is this, are a majority of those people found within still the summit in uh, the Raleigh-Durham area? Or are you actually like, you know, the one that's in Boston? Yeah, we, we found somebody there. So we're going to equip them and, and they're going to go plant in Austin. Like, how, how is that working? Yeah, so there is a little bit of a maturation of where we're identifying leaders. And so I'll tell you the history and then I'll tell you the aspiration of really what we're all committed to at this point. Um, primarily in the beginning, it was we were identifying people that were on staff at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, and um, they were working there for years and years and years. And then we identified that they could lead. We wanted to plant them. We would prepare them, and then they would go and plant. Um, at a certain point, because we began to do that a little bit more effectively and efficiently, people who relationally were connected to the Summit or knew of JD's ministry give us a call. Hey. I would love to plant a church. My church is not currently planting churches. Can you help me plant a church? And so then that people would actually move into Raleigh-Durham, be a part of the summit for a period of time, and then they would plant out of there. Then the, the next kind of iteration of that is mm -hmm. people from at another church says, hey, I want to plant a church. I would love for you to help me plant a church. And we would say, okay, stay where you are. Continue to do ministry there. Mm -hmm. We'll support you remotely. We'll travel you in some. We'll, we'll do some things a little bit more uh, online, or we'll come to you a little bit, and then you'll plant the church. And then now, kind of the model now is that less and less often are those calls coming in from the outside, and more and more frequently, those connections to people who are ready to plant are coming from relationships and even further internally to those 59 churches that I've talked about. So that's really the intention going forward. We believe that this is the future of church planting. I mean, you you probably have heard it said or, um, you know, even had the conversation a couple of different times. There's more money than there are leaders in order to plant churches uh, because we just don't have leaders that are ready to lead in the pastor. And so uh, rather than recruiting people to come and plant churches through the collaborative, we believe that really we've got to get to the business of developing the leaders and then mm -hmm. planting our leaders, um, which actually is, is better in a number of different ways. I mean, the, watching someone develop for three years, five years in your church gives you a lot more confidence in their character and capacity to be able to lead a church than it does when you do a four-hour or a two-day assessment, right? There's just nothing that you can exchange for actually spending time with someone. Um, so we, we are committed to creating a farm system. And in fact, we feel like we have one. It's just we've got to get all the pipelines turned on. And so that's really where my effort, my day-to-day -day effort is going right now is working really, really hard with all 59 of our churches to turn on every potential pipeline of a leader. The majority of those pipelines we are realizing are actually developing leaders that are going to stay in those local churches. And that's fantastic because we think that if a church is flourishing and their leadership is flourishing over the long term, that God will identify leaders and God will multiply those churches. And so we're, we're that's that's what we're doing. We're trying to catch all those pipelines on fire. And then when call, God calls people, we're ready to plant them. I love that model, Clayton. I love how the, the local church is taking ownership of identifying people and equipping them. Tell us a little bit about those pipelines. What what does that look like? Yeah. So every pipeline in each church can be can be different. Um, some churches, uh, if, a, if it is a, 
um, a little bit of a smaller church. The, all of the pipelines are the same. There's a little bit of the lay leaders leading up into the staff. And so we initially we're trying to help our churches with um, develop their staff um, and their staff then in turn develop the, the volunteers that are serving with them locally. So we're helping uh, do assessments of a lot of their staff, particularly the ones that are going to be promoted and kind of have more leadership at the individual church. At larger churches, I mean, and even like at the summit, which is one of our 59, um, we get a little bit more granular with how we're developing those pipelines. So the, um, at the summit and a couple of other churches, there's a very clear college uh, pastor kind of pipeline, which of course that, you know, can lead into church planter uh, with the student director pipeline. Um, there, there's a lot of opportunity there. And so there, um, whenever we find a group of people that are leading a ministry and they're kind of, there are these pockets of people who are all there, particularly when they're fresh leaders being onboarded in areas of significant responsibility, that's where we feel like there is, uh, we need to create a pipeline. And rather than having them group together, we kind of create a, a vacuum, so to speak, by helping the, their, their leaders actually um, level up what they're doing and their leadership of those people in order to give those other people space to be able to grow into higher levels of leadership. Oh, great. I love that. What, what are you seeing as characteristic today of, uh, of your church planters? I mean, if somebody were to come to you, Clayton, and say, hey, you know what? I want to church plant. What would you tell them that you need what? You need to be this, you need to have this character. What are those characteristics that you that you're seeing is going to make a successful church planter in North America? Uh, well, so I love the fact that more and more often that is a conversation that we're having with the lead pastor of one of our 59 churches because they've seen them. They know what type of leader they are. They have an idea of what type of church that they would leave because they had the ability to kind of watch them lead over time. So it, it's much more gray than what I'll make it seem now in my answer. Mm. We have a nine point church planner profile. We actually call it the, a nine point church leader profile. Um, for us, it's just our way of categorizing the different pieces that someone needs in order to lead at a high level in a church. Uh, it comes from reading all the studies about church planting and what makes something uh, a church planner successful and what make it, makes a church successful. Um, you know, you, <clears throat> We believe that God is doing this movement, but we're also reading those things to make sure that we don't make any huge errors. Uh, the way that we break down those nine categories is it's three sets of three. Um, so it's character, competencies, and calling. The character pieces that we look at are uh, self-awareness, spiritual maturity, and teachability. Uh, we spend a lot of time here first. If you're not aware of yourself, and in particular, aware of how other people engage with and are affected by your leadership, we can't, we can't have you lead in any position in the church. Self-awareness, spiritual maturity, you have to be walking with God and leading others to walk with God, or you might be a leader. You could just need to go lead somewhere else. That's not the church. Teachability, there has to be an amount of humility and willingness to learn and grow. I was having a conversation with, with one of the leaders in Redeemer City to City and the phrase that, that he used was, um, I can't remember it right off the bat, but it was almost like inquisitive. Anytime someone comes in and says, I know what I'm going to do, and this is going to be the, you know, this is going to be great. Um, you should be suspicious. If someone comes in and says, I don't know what's happening, but I think God's doing something mm -hmm. that person's ready to lead, right? That's that teachability aspect. 
So that's character. Competencies, um, the three that are there are uh, leadership, just general leadership experience and ability. I've led teams. I've led teams of teams. I've led leaders that lead teams, that type of stuff. Um, communication, the ability to communicate in small groups as well as large ones. If you're going to be a, a lead pastor, that includes preaching. And then ownership. We want to know that you've committed to something and you've kind of been able to walk through it over, over a period of time. You recognize the risk and can kind of carry some of that 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 burden as the leader because as much as you try to share it, there still is some of that that rests on somebody. Calling, family uh, calling is the first aspect of that third tier. Um, if everybody in the family is not in, then we're not in. We actually go as far as, you know, we're working with lead pastors. We go as far as when we're having our, our kind of final assessment with them. We, um, I really want to get one of the like, red like easy buttons which actually it mm. needs to be reverse we actually say to the spouse to everybody in the family we say hey if you want to stop we'll stop right now here's my email you email me and tell me to stop and i will stop we essentially give any way possible to say if you don't want to do this tell me and i won't do it because if because they can be nervous right in in telling their spouse hey i don't want to go do this in this city like in this way and, mm. and but the whole family has got to be committed so Family calling, uh, vision, the ability to have, like they have a burden for a, a future um, that kind of morphs into kind of a story vision of what God would have for a, a new church. Uh, and then direction. What is their specific role? Like, are they going to be a lead? Are they going to be an exec? Are they going to be something else in the role? So that's that's what we're looking for is that nine point profile broken into three sets of three. Okay. So you, you landed on uh, nine points. Are you sure you didn't want to make it like 10 points? So you didn't just become nine marks. You just want to, you want to call them points. So you don't call them marks. So you lose lawsuits that way. I see what you yeah. did there. Yeah. Um, nine summits. You should call it nine summits. Nine. You're climbing no, to each summit. Because no? then it becomes like almost confused <laughs> with the seven mountain movement. And we don't want to confuse that. So oh, yeah. let's not do that. Um, Here's the question, though. I, I make a joke about the 10th point, but something I didn't entirely hear um, there. What where does like theological competency fall where you are talking with somebody who is a potential church planter? Now, again, I'm I'm asking because there is a difference between like the superiority complex that says you can't go and plant until you believe and think just like me, which is yep. certainly something that we want to stay away from. Well, at the same time, we, I would certainly hope, and I know you guys don't want to send out people who are not theologically competent, who don't have that knowledge base. And you're like, you know what? You feel like a really, really passionate person and you're good in all these other things. So your thumbs up. And uh, we'll deal with the fallout when it comes. I know you guys aren't doing that. So how do you deal with that uh, invisible 10th point of theological competency? It's not listed on the nine, but it definitely is a part of the process. Um, so there's a, a huge theological questionnaire that someone has to complete before they're, they're coming through. Absolutely. I think that maybe it's more that, that those other things are describing the, how the person is behaving and they're kind right. their, their, their expressive competencies rather than their, their beliefs. Um, yeah. There's a whole questionnaire devoted to that. Uh, and then also in order to be a part of the family, I mean, a lot of this happens again through the, the relationships, people like 
know those things based on conversations that they're having with people. And so before anybody gets to the place of being recommended for the collaborative, a lot of that has already been been done in practice. But we say that everybody is <clears throat> needs to be committed to gospel balance and multiplication. And so the, that gospel and balance piece, um, the conversation related to those emphasis definitely bring that in. And then there's the, the whole questionnaire that we read in order to make sure that there's an alignment, uh, a statement mm-hmm. of faith that you have to agree to, stuff like that. So in that process, if you're talking with somebody, and again, emotionally, they're where you want them to be. But on that, that belief structure, that theological piece, you say, I think they could use some sharpening up. How do you how do you do that? What, what's the process to help somebody shore up some of those beliefs or understandings uh, before you say, okay, we're going to, we're going to push you on into that next stage. Yeah. Yeah. Most people that have, so there are, there are a couple of different steps before you get to the place of actually applying to actually plant through the collaborative. Um, and all of that shoring up happens in those preceding steps and, and at, through the local church and through the seminaries. So, I mean, that, that was one of the conversations that Michael and I were having is like, as we get better and better at this pipeline business, that we are going to probably run into the, to the space where everyone who is coming or is, is, we feel is ready to plant a church may not have already completed a seminary degree at one of these seminaries that, um, that we are related to or, or ones that we, we trust. And, and so doing more of that education in the local church is going to be important pipelines truly are actually developing leaders. So that's not something that the collaborative, we're not going to take responsibility for that. If if someone doesn't meet the bar, the answer is when someone does that application process, there is you're accepted, you're accepted on conditions or here's recommended areas of growth that would, that would kind of fall into the recommended areas of growth. They with their leadership and their family would, would have the responsibility of going to Kind of shore up those things, and then they could pl- apply again. Um, I, I I can't tell you a story of when that has happened. Mm. Um, so I, I, that, that filtering is happening before someone gets to that final application process. Mm. Well, okay, I'm I'm super encouraged. I mean, how exciting is it to hear about a church who has a vision to see multiple churches start, and and actually to hear that, gosh, they've started fifty nine of them in uh, North America. That's super encouraging. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm excited about that. Tell us, Clayton, a little bit about the international side of this, because that's where, the, uh, well, I mean, everybody knows, I'm, I'm sure who listens to us, uh, has heard about the summit announcing that they've planted a thousand churches, they've achieved their goal. Uh, but as you indicated, uh, many of those churches are overseas. Tell us about the overseas, the international part. So the summit is halfway to the goal. Um, halfway to the goal. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we crossed 500. It was actually one of our churches. When we commissioned, we commissioned 10 churches this year um, out of the, the collaborative. Two of them international, one in um, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and one in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, and so with that 10, we got to 501 and 502. Oh. Um, so that, that was kind of the big uh, celebration that we had. Um, so over 400 of those, if you're kind of doing that backwards math, um, are inter- international churches. So I actually, I don't, I don't know a ton. So um, kind of speaking from my knowledge of working side by side, um, I mean, the summit has 
for a long time, it has been like a mainstay of what they do in order to identify people who want to live internationally and plant churches internationally, preparing them and then sending them with a number of different organizations, but primarily with the IMB. I mean, I think the last, I mean, it's like 175 units on the field or something like that. Mm. People that are Summit Church uh, members. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a ton. I would say uh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an, it's an, an insane amount and it just continues to, to, to be that way. I think that, you know, um, once you get that many units on the field, it becomes, I'm not in no way. I don't, I was going to say it becomes easier, right? It doesn't become easier, so to speak, but when you have places to send people, that are interested and they can send, you can send them someone where there already is a team and then that team can multiply. That's a lot easier than that very first person going and saying, I don't know, go live in that city and see what happens. You know? <laughs> so I think that mm. we, that the summit has that infrastructure. We have, yeah, well, g- good. Same. There, there's a, there's a congrats. <laughs> wow. There's um, there is a, uh, there's a cohort that they lead. It's kind of a rolling cohort. People are entering that cohort um, all the time and leaving, and they're they're training, living in a another culture, um, sharing the gospel in another culture. I mean, there's there's tons of things that they are working on. And then, as a part of kind of the end of that cohort, people will maybe stay in that cohort for more than a year. They just continue to be there and be developed and prepared. And then they um, they work with them to identify the the right sending organization. Again, most of the time, the IMB, and then they really, really like to, to place people with our current teams and then let those teams multiply. Um, yeah. So yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's a good, over good healthy way, good, healthy way uh, for new missionaries to go to the field. I love that. I mean, I, I, I keep saying, and it's so impressed on my mind that if, if we talk about being missional and being a missional church, if we're not sending people overseas, to engage with others who have not had opportunity to hear the gospel, then I don't think that we have any right to call ourselves missional. Mm. Um, and it's so I'm, that's super exciting to hear Clayton. Okay. So here's my question. I have lots of questions, Clayton. So we were essentially going to have to just end the podcast eventually. And my questions will be unanswered because I just have so many. Uh, yeah, there we go. But then it won't be on the pod. And I can't like tell people go listen to that because, you know, I can't be like, hey, how many how many way calls can we take? Um, you talk about there is almost a, a a model difference between the North American way of church planting and then what you guys see in all of these units that are supported by the IMB throughout the world. Um, how is the how have the discussions been about can we pursue some of this international model being done in the States. Have you guys talked about what that might look like to have not so much the organizational lead pastor Sunday morning gathering uh, on state side? Has that been broached? Yeah. I mean, we would, you know, here you would, you would call that the house church model. I mean, we have people, we've had people that have come around that were um, going to be considering that, um, I, I personally am intrigued by that and have at, at times kind of participate, not, not fully participated in a house church here in the States, but, um, done things that were similar to it, um, with, with different groups of people. I, I would, we would certainly be agreeable to doing that, but we haven't at this point. I think that we are built to produce that organizational type of model. 
Um, but it is a conversation that we have had. We have not yet had the opportunity to actually do it. I know that there are groups that are doing that here in the States. And um, I think that probably our churches are going to, well, the organizational church in the States is, I don't think is going to go away, but I think they're going to have to be more expressions of the church that do look more like a house church in the coming years. I think that my girls likely, um, unless they they live in certain cities in the United States, likely, likely will continue to walk with God with smaller groups of people that look less organizational when they are my age. I, I, I think that that's true. And so we, we try to give them experiences that, um, that prepare them for that, so to speak, um, seeing different expressions of the church and recognizing that there can be a lot of different expressions of um, God's people walking with him and being a blessing to the whole earth. Um, that does, that doesn't uh, look like what, you know, they're experiencing right now at the Summit RDU, or they would experience at most of our 59 churches. Sure, sure. And, and along those same lines, I wonder, too, what, what is it that you're seeing in regards to co-vocational? Do you see many co-vocational planners coming out of the, the Summit Collaborative? Uh, we see a lot of uh, second-chair leaders be co-vocational. We have one co-vocational leader that is in Austin, Texas. Um, I okay. think that... Yeah, I think that, yeah, you want, we should make an introduction there. I mean, that's not that far, right? No. Uh, how far is that? It's like three hours, three, three and a half. Yeah. So down I, the road. I, I, I started saying not that far as if I knew how large Texas was. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well in so, Texas, that's not that far. No, that's exactly what I was about to say. Like you were talking about Wilmington and Raleigh being three hours apart. And I'm like, you know, that's not that bad because yeah. everything in Texas is far flung. And we're kind of like, oh, three, four hours. That's fine. So anyway, okay. So Covo, second chair, guy in Austin. Uh, how how is that looking for him? Uh, well, it's it's kind of, it's a little bit new. That was a little bit of a so so using that as like a a launching point into what people are going to have to do in in more urban areas and more under resourced communities. Um, it was, a he initially was fundraising and leading in the a very similar model to all the other churches, organizational, full-time lead pastor, these type of things. But I mean, they have a, 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 like a really good thing going in terms of the people that are gathering, um, people being baptized, new people being, being added to the, to the church there, but the expense of living in Austin for his mm-hmm. large family it's up there. Um, oh man, uh, getting a getting a house in the city like where all the people are, right? I mean, it's like it's really really hard. And then add into that a little bit of uh, a, a slightly younger population in that church, a lot of mm-hmm. new believers in that church. And now mm-hmm. I've stacked a couple of things on top of each other that just mean that the giving to the church is just not in the way that that can support his family in a way that is actually sustainable. So they they had to make the, a, a pivot. I think that, um, you know, we have a lot of guys who fundraise a lot of dollars and we are really encouraged and excited by that. And it gives them the ability to go and do some things that they can't do if they are bivocational or co-vocational. But I, I think that um, we are, last year we had the conversation at least twice of people who were like, is fundraising in order to be full-time the better strategy or is 
uh, tent making for myself going to be a better strategy. I, since this is more of a free flowing conversation, I'll just, you know, I'm getting comfortable in the conversation to the point that I'll, I'll say something a little bit more free flowing. I think (laughs) that part of it is, I think part of it is a lot of people who want to be lead pastors don't have a good tent making option. Mm. So like, if you're, if you see, you see what I'm saying? So if if Uh, I'm going to, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be part-time and like, so I, so love baristas, right? So we have a lot of college students and young people who will move with our churches to be a part of the team. They'll go to a city and they'll get us, you know, a job. If we send a lead pastor to go get a similar type of job, because that was like the capacity that like, that was like the experience that they, they don't have any kind of like employee job career experience that they can go and like get a job that can actually fund a lot of what is happening in their family. Like just some of these other smaller part-time jobs just actually don't move the needle so much. And it's like, well, if I'm making that much, I might as well just go fundraise. It's easier to fundraise than it is to get a job that can substantially be able to help your family. Um, yeah. Provide, I mean, there's, there are a lot of challenges uh, today to, in the North American context, but there, you know, there's a beautiful model uh, that, that a seminary in India is using that I, I work with Tell me about it. and they simultaneously, when a student is getting his master of divinity, He's also going to a trade school. Hey, so yes. when he graduates, he graduates with an employable trade as a plumber, electrician, uh, that something, or even in agriculture. So something where he will be able to sustain himself and his family when they go out into a village someplace uh, to start a church. And, uh, and the whole concept behind that is to give him credibility in the community where he can build relationships with the people that he's working alongside. So there's some, uh, some creative things that are going on in different parts of the world that, that could work here. But, you know, like you said, Clayton, a part of the problem is that a lot of our lead pastors are trained in a seminary uh, formally. And uh, that's, that's what they know. Uh, and to put them into a, a situation where they would have to find employment is difficult uh, unless they come, you know, already like you, for example, as a physical therapist right. uh, with something that is a skill that was learned at the university that they could utilize as a way to to uh, engage a community. Well, and, and it also depends on like where where you're planting the 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 giving culture in the city where you're planting the cost of living in the city where you're planting. And so when someone comes to us and we're seeing this change a little bit, like where everyone's not like saying, I want to move to the epicenter of this urban community in order to plant. We do have people that are doing that. Um, we also have people who are saying, Hey, I want to go plant my hometown. Um, and you know, where I, I know the landscape and, and I can, I, I know that my family can be, be provided for. Um, so, but I mean, the cities, so right now I'm actually, you guys can see uh, these bunk beds right here. I'm actually in the apartment of um, one of our planters that is in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Um, and it's, it's really, really expensive to, to live here. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this area of town is built for either really, really high earners, like single, single person uh, owner uh, or earner with a spouse who is caring for kids um, or dual income families. And I, I think that if you think, if I think about the profile of the typical person who is wanting to plant a church, 
most of the time, they're not dual income families. We have a number of them, but more than 50% of them are not dual income families, meaning the, the wife is not working outside of the home. And then also, like I already said, they don't necessarily have the ability to be an, a high income earner on their on their own right. One of the, the um, pastors that we have um, who probably told, told me something in his personal experience, his wife is a dentist. And he's like, man, I love being able to pastor my church, not having to worry about whether or not these people are giving and letting that being the prime, like one of the primary things that I need to, to talk to them about because um, I need it in order to, to fund the church. Um, so uh, I heard a podcast a, a really, really long time ago. I don't know if it was a podcast, but uh, it was something from the Redeemer City to City guys. And they said it's really, really hard to plant someone in New York City unless they have uh, a high income income earning wife um just because the, the 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 amount of money that is necessary in order to sustain a family is just gargantuan yeah it seems yeah. like there's so many things about the model um that north american organizational model that we we i'm a part of right and um that it almost feels like the church is getting priced out <laughs> of certain areas and it's like do you want to plant a church yes unless it's here because if you want to plant it in these high dollar areas, then essentially you almost need to see yourself as, um, as a missionary that other people are going to have to fundraise for or support uh-huh. because for you to be able to do that job in the model as it exists, and please hear me out in that. I'm not yep. saying it's the only model, but in the model as it exists, then you're going to have to have dollars from outside of it. Because if you're working with either young people or you're working with, uh, we always laugh. Um, if you're working with a lot of medical students, you know what medical students have bills and you know what they're not getting money. And then what happens is they train in our area. We disciple them. We raise them up and guess what? Match day sends them all over the country. And now they're far flung from us when they start earning and so they become really faithful givers at their next church or two churches <laughs> down the road. And so um, that's, you know, half of our congregation. And uh, so you end up saying like, okay, if we want to actually have this and we want to grow it, somebody else is going to have to support us, which then begs that question, is this model, <laughs> how long do we have with this? You know, mm-hmm. it may not go away, but it's going to have to, it's going to have to change because we can't just say, who gets to have Jesus, the suburbanites. And then we're just going to say people in the city, God bless you. I hope you find Jesus somehow. Uh, what is a, what is going to be the, the way that we can work to develop bivo or covo pastors? What are we going to do? Well, how are we going to do the, the course of ministry that allows for faithful discipleship and evangelism that doesn't also require that full-time organizational job. Mm-hmm. So, and now that we have all collectively scratched our heads and we're, I'm just, I'm just going to leave this as like, is like, we're going to have to back, have you back on to continue to talk. Cause I know that uh, because of our time today, we're going to need to wrap things up. Clayton, are there any like final words, parting shots, things you want to, to leave us with as we close down our podcast today? Uh, to to wrap up that head scratching, I would just say um, when I had that conversation with the guy from Redeemer City, City to City last year, he said, if as a church planning organization, if you're not doing 10 to 15% of your effort is not in R&D, 
then you're then you're not being faithful for 10 years from now mm-hmm. right if you're not doing things that are trying to figure this out then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot for the future because the model um the the necessary um um, changes to the strategy it's always adjusting and so you need to always be um con- considering this rather than just saying oh what we did work so let's just keep doing it so that's what we're doing and i'm excited that that was part of the conversation today yeah yeah that's neat well we're grateful clayton that you could join us today we definitely want to get you back at some point and uh hear more about what you all are doing so encouraging uh, to hear of the, the numbers of churches you guys are planning thanks for having me uh, if people want to get a hold of you, Clayton, how can they how can they reach out if they have further questions? Yeah, email at Clayton at summitcollaborative.org. Clayton at summitcollaborative.org. That's fantastic. Well, Clayton, very much thank you. Thank you, thank you for being with Michael and I today in this conversation. Uh, listeners, if you want to continue on in the conversation, certainly reach out to Clayton, uh, but throw a line our way. Um, The other week, we posted a request for you to send in some questions. If you have a burning question of Michael and I uh, to continue to discuss on Ephesiology, we want to be able to answer those and interact with you. Uh, But if you don't want to send that message, uh, that file (laughs) uh, to us, uh, to my email, andrewjohnson at neartownchurch.org, we invite you to join us in the conversation uh, on Facebook or Instagram, or even Twitter. I think Michael and I might check that once a month. So uh, for Michael, myself, and Clayton, thank you so much for joining, uh, joining us today on the Ephesiology Podcast.